We are reading in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, and we're reading about the descendants of Shem. So, what happens is, this is the... the so, God uh, dealt with man's disobedience in a big way three times. He dealt with man's disobedience three ways in a big time. First time was in the Garden of Eden. He dealt with the disobedience. Second time, he dealt with man's disobedience uh, at, at just just before the flood, when mankind started interbreeding with these what was were called uh, uh, sons of men, with daughters of uh, of women were interbreeding with sons of men, which was bringing demonic influence into the world. And the third time was in the first part of Genesis chapter 11 when they built this Tower of Babel, which was uh, this huge idol. There's many more seats up here, so you really don't have to stand in the back. There's a bunch of seats right up here, so come right on up. Um, so so uh, uh, this is the third time, and so now instead of focusing on humankind in general, what he's going to do is he's going to focus in on... Um, on one particular family line and one particular family, and he's soon going to turn just to to Abraham uh, in particular. But we're going to read about the descendants of Shem. So now he picks out one line from humankind to follow him. Previously, he was following. We followed all of humankind. Now we're following just the sons of Shem because we saw the sons of Noah gave birth to seventy nations. There were seventy sons gave birth to seventy nations. Now we're going to follow just this line of Shem. Verse 10 of Genesis chapter 11. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old when he became the father of Arpachshad, two years after the flood. And Shem lived 500 years after and became the father of Arpachshad, and he had other sons and daughters. Arpachshad lived 35 years, and he became the father of Shelah. And Arpachshad lived... 403 years after he became the father of Shelah, and he had other sons and daughters. Shelah had, Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber, and he had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and he became the father of Peleg, and Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and he became the father of Ruah, and Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Reu, and he had other sons of daughters. Reu lived 32 years, and he became the father of Serug. And Reu lived 207 years after he became the father of Serug, and he had other sons and daughters. Serug lived 30 years, and he became the father of Nahor. And Serug lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor, and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years, and he became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah, and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years, and he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now, did I mention any numbers in this section? A bunch of them, right? The Bible is full of numbers. It is highly specific. It gives the age. If, if we were just going to make something up, if we were just going to tell some fairy tale, how many fairy tales have numbers like this? They don't. Just as in a land far, far away, a long, long time ago. And then it goes. This doesn't do that. But now we get all of these ages and you see these really long lives. And, and uh, uh, can this be real? 
can people live that long? So let's, let's just begin to, to study a little bit about that today. So human lifespans given in the Bible, can the Bible really be trusted? Is it something that can be trusted? And biblical claims need to be evaluated. The Bible never says, you know, don't, don't question this book. Go ahead, question it. God invites us to question this book. He invites us to do this. There are other religions that say, oh, don't question this book. If you do, you know, your eyes will fall out. Your firstborn will die. You know, it, it puts curses on you if you question it. But here we're invited to do this just as we, we're, we, we're to evaluate scientific claims. Are scientific claims really a fact or are they conjecture? And so we're to do that sort of thing. So this is, this is now a, a, a list of the lifetimes of, of, uh, of the people listed in the Bible. So here you have Adam. Adam lived 930 years. So Adam was born... So, so we're looking at this calendar year from the Hebrew calendar. So year zero where, where Adam was born. And he lived 930 years. After 130 years, Seth, Seth was born in the year 130. He lived 912 years. So you see these lifespans. These are really big numbers. Now, Enoch, he was the guy that we covered. He was taken by God. God loved him a lot, and, and he was taken by God. And so his lifespan was cut short. He was immediately elevated to, to heaven and uh, uh, with God. And then there's Methuselah, the longest living person ever documented in the Bible, 969 years. And then Lamech. Now, the Bible encourages you to do the math. Just do the math. The Bible encourages this. Now, what people will often say is, well, they didn't really know how to count back then. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. Does this look like it was written by somebody who doesn't know how to count? Somebody who doesn't know how to count. You talk to somebody who doesn't know how to count. They don't mention numbers. They just don't mention numbers. They just stay away from numbers. People who don't know how to do math just avoid it. People who do math, you know, they're always just doing integrals in their mind and and, and they're not afraid to talk about this sort of thing. So, so it, it's, it's doing the math for us. And you say, well, they didn't know how to count. But all of a sudden, they start getting into the, the lifespan, start shortening. So here's Abraham, lived 175 years. And by the time you get down to a few generations after him, the lifetimes start going to around 80 to 90 years. You say, okay, now they learned how to count. Yeah, the same guys who wrote that wrote this. And so all of a sudden they learned how to count? So it says in Genesis chapter 6 verse 3, Then the Spirit of the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he, al he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. So this was just before the flood. That was actually 120 years before the flood. So that could well have meant that... In 120 years, the flood is coming, and it may well have meant that. Also, that man's life, humankind's life, was going to start to decline. So there is this lifespan, and you see two sharp decreases in lifespan. You see a sharp decrease right in here about the day, right after Methuselah. So, so Lamech is fairly cut short. Noah lives a long time, but here you have the flood. The flood occurs, and the lifespans all of a sudden start getting shorter. They, it shortens from 950 at Noah to 600. That's a big decrease. And then it goes to 438 and 433. Uh, I got this off of this website, comingtojesus.com. Coming, uh, so you, you, can, you can go and get the same chart. And, and then 
And then all of a sudden, there's another sharp decrease. You go from these numbers in the 400s all of a sudden to numbers in the 200s, and then it, it, it begins to, to shorten down from there. That's two events that occur. Two events occurred. So here is the drop, the generation, the flood generation. So this is after Noah. Noah's, uh, uh, so, so you have Noah, and then you're following this line, Shem. So his sons didn't live quite as long as he did, and you see this sharp decline. This is the drop after the flood. Right before the flood, God said, I'm going to cut down the lives. They're going to go down to about 120 years. Then, then uh, uh, you see another sharp decline in Genesis, right after Genesis uh, chapter 11, you see, you see this sharp decline in Peleg. We read about this in the beginning of chapter 11. It, sa it said, Peleg, the division occurred in his days. And that was the division that occurred because of, of uh, uh, this Tower of Babel occurred, this division in language. And God then judged the world for that and shortened the lives again. He shortened the lives. And you say, well, why would he shorten the lives? Why, why, why would God do that? Because man, humankind, is too corrupt. Really. And it's only because our lives are as short as it is that, that, that our, our corruption is, is kind of squelched. What happens is you learn as you get older, you learn how to be more and more devious. And, and this is something you, you learn. And if your health remained good, you would get really nasty. The only way, and I've told you this before, the only way that the younger folks in the department of, uh, in, in, in academia can really start rising up and, and the assistant professors can start taking on things is because the older folks, they have strokes and they just sit there and they just drool. And so they, they can't run the department anymore. Because if they ran the department, they would take total control of it. They would never let the young folks come up and take control. And it's because people grow old, and if people grow for a long time, think of, I mean, look at, look at the, the Senate right now. It's like everyone in, in the Senate and the Congress is like 200 years old. And, and, um, uh, and, and so then they start questioning the, the, these folks that like run Google, and the guy starts talking about an Apple phone, and the guy is like, we don't make those products. I mean, these guys are totally lost. And they know nothing about this. And so you, they just need to leave and let some other younger people come in. This is what happens. They would retain their power. So, so the lives get shorter and shorter because humankind is corrupt. Now, I want you to look at something here. You say, well, how was, were the traditions, how were these understandings maintained? From Adam, that's the first man, through Jacob, which is Abraham's grandson. Remember, you have Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. From Adam to Jacob, there's only three jumps. Adam overlaps with Lamech. Lamech overlaps with Shem. Shem overlaps. Shem actually overlaps with, with uh, uh, Jacob by 50 years. There is great consistency throughout this. So we think all these people died. No, if you look at their lifespans, they overlap tremendously. So Adam, Adam knows Lamech. So Adam knows Lamech. And you say, well, how can that be? How come I don't see Adam meeting Lamech? Because there's a lot in Adam's life of a thousand years that is not reported. But the Bible says, do the math. It tells you right there. It's not like it's trying to hide this. You know, if it said they met, you would say, well, I don't believe it unless they would show me the math. All right, you got the math. It gave it to you. You got it. And, and, and so now you have the math and you can see that, yes... There's a lot that can be overlapped. My daughter, my daughter met my grandfather before he died and, and, and she knew my grandfather. 
My daughter knew my grandfather. So you see those generations knowing each other. Here they live much longer. But you see the, tr- the traditions are very much continued. And so you can see this sort of overlap. But the Bible shows us this and gives us this type of record. So there are three texts on the lifespans in, in, uh, uh, where, where in, in the Bible. And it says, it says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So God made a proclamation to shorten lifespan. And then again, he shortened it. Again, there's a statement on, that, that verifies this. Pharaoh said to Jacob, so this is Jacob. Remember that that was Abraham's uh, grandson. How many years have you lived? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130, 130. Few and unpleasant have been my years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. So in other words, Jacob is testifying. I'm 130 years old and I'm an old man. It's nothing like the people who went before me. It's not like Jacob says, you know, I'm old, but you know, this is characteristic of, you know, you know, we all live this long. No, he was saying, this is short compared to my father's. So Jacob is testifying to the veracity of what's written here. But then we see in Psalm 90 verse 10, this is a Psalm of Moses. Moses wrote this. As for the days of life, they contain 70 years or if due to strength, 80 years. That's about where we are now. 70 years, if due to strength, 80 years. So God made a proclamation through Moses that he's going to shorten it again to 70 to 80 years. That's basically where we have remained. That is about where we are now. So so most living species have at least one upper limit on the number of times the cells of a member can divide. This is called the Hayflick limit, although the number of cell divisions does not strictly control lifespan. But there is, there is some limit on which cells can divide. So what controls age? People will say, well, people, a human being just can't live 900 years. I'll agree with you, that doesn't happen today. But why do you say a human being cannot live to 900 or 969 years like Methuselah does? You have absolutely no basis for making that, that proclamation. Absolutely none. And it's because you know nothing, nothing about longevity studies that you question that you would say such a thing. People who study this, the big question is, why don't we live longer? What is it that causes the cells to stop dividing? What is it that causes a cell to go into senescence? Senescence is this dormant state. So you take a person my age and like, like 15% of my heart cells at my age are probably in senescence. They're not dividing. They're not doing any good anymore. Why is that? This is what longevity studies study. Why is this? What is it about organic matter that, that, that it, it stops growing like this? The question is, why don't we live longer? If, if, if there was an upper limit on age, why would there be all these studies on longevity? Why would there? Where people are trying to double lifespans. No, it's because there's a big question. Why don't we live longer? The longest living person whose, date, whose dates of birth and death were verified according to modern norms of, of the Guinness World Records uh, of gerontology research group was uh, Janine Calment, uh, a French woman who reportedly lived to 122. So we do have verified by standards that we would <clears throat> say to these days that people can live to 120. We got, we got evidence of that. 
who say, okay, 120, but they couldn't live to be 200. How do you know? How do you know? On what basis do you say that? Zero basis. That's how you say it. That's how people say it. Okay, so this is the life expectancy in the USA in 1900 to, to, uh, uh, to 1998. So it was, it was for a male, it was 46, for a female, 48. And now in, in 78, it was, uh, 1998, it was 74 and 80. All right, so have lifespans actually uh, gone up by, by almost double? Just since 1900 in the United States? No, they haven't. Actually, actually, the, the number is, is, is terribly thrown off but because infant mortality skews this. There's a bunch of kids that were dying in 1900 as infants, and that was skewing those numbers. So uh, in animal studies, maximum span, maximum span is often taken to be the mean lifespan of the most long-lived 10% of a given cohort. By another definition, however, maximum lifespan corresponds to the age at which the oldest known member of a species or experimental group has died. Calculation of maximum lifespan in the latter sense depends upon initial sample size. So it's not easy to just look at that number. That number of human lifespan is increasing in the United States from 45 to 75 since 1900. No, that, that's just because of longevity. There's other ways of looking at this. So, for example... Um, uh, uh, there has been a study on the length in, in, in uh, ancient Greece that shows that Socrates was not unique in his case. In a study of all men of renown living in the 5th and 4th century in Greece, we identified 83 whose date of birth and death have been recorded with certainty. Uh, the mean and, and the standard deviation and the median lengths of life were 73 plus or minus 13, or 70 years and 70 years respectively. So, this is in ancient Greece, and, and uh, this, you say, well, this is men of renown. Well, of course, the lifespan of men of renown should be correlated with the general population, but with a higher mean, since men require time to achieve renown. But certainly, the, this figure of 71 does not seem too different from the more recent men of renown. You know, men of renown, if you were to look at them in our generation, it'd probably be men around 70 years old. Uh, um, so, and, and this is even more surprising if one takes into account the high levels of vi violence in ancient Greece. So, so you look at numbers that were recorded, it's much higher than this age of 45 that we, we just look at if you just look at lifespans in the, in the U.S. How long do we live? This is a mathematical treatise, and, and what they come out at the end of is our main finding is that the conventional calculation of period of life expectancy at birth gives a misleading indication of how long we live. This is just like... For all of you math whizzes, you can look at this paper and, and uh, uh, it just, just shows the difficulty in really, in really how you calculate these numbers. But you say, well, well why, why, are, why has this number increased in the United States? Well, reduction of infant mortality has accounted for most of the increased average lifespan longevity. Uh, but since the 1960s, mortality rates among those over 80 years old have decreased uh, by about 1.5% per year. Uh, the progress being made in lengthening lifespans and postponing senescence is entirely due to medical and public health efforts, uh, rising standards of living, better education, healthier nutrition, and more celebrious uh, lifestyles. Animal studies suggest that, that uh, further lengthening of the median lifespan as well as maximum lifespans could be accounted for by caloric 
uh, uh, restriction. You've heard of that. You know, if you take mice, you feed them very little, they'll live longer, which seems to me like a terrible way to have to live. But thankfully, they've tried to extrapolate this to primates, and it doesn't hold. So if you think that you can, you can restrict your calories and live 50% longer like a rat does, uh, probably not, uh, uh, because other primates, it doesn't seem to hold. But this is, all gets back to, to, uh, to infant mortality. So let's get back to the topic at hand. Genetic entropy. This is by a guy named J.C. Sanford. He's a professor at uh, uh, Cornell. Now he's coming so that you know his, his mindset. He is coming from, from a worldview of being a Christian. He's a Christian, and, and uh, uh, he's writing this from a Christian perspective. I don't agree with everything that he says, but he's a great guy. I've met him a couple of times, and it's interesting. He came up with this term, genetic entropy. So what he does is he plots, here's the lifespan of Adam to Noah, lifespan of the generations uh, of Adam to Noah, pre-flood, excluding Enoch, who was taken prematurely. And so here you see these, these, these lifespans of these people uh, according to their generation. This is the lifespans of the people according to the generation. It was pretty much flat. The lifespan continued pretty much the same throughout these ten generations, from Noah all the way to, to uh, uh, just before, before uh, uh, it would, it would be, it would be uh, um, from Adam to Noah. So these ten generations, everything remained flat. And so this is, this is uh, pictures that I took out of this book. So this is a numerical simulation employed, employed a, a mutation rate of, one, uh, of 100, a population of 10,000, and assumed animal junk DNA. And, and assume minimal junk DNA. It is assumed that one mutation in 1,000 was beneficial. That's actually generous. It's actually one mutation in 1,000. So he was being generous here. One mutation in 1,000 in human beings is, is, is beneficial. So above is the deleterious mutation count per individual. So you see that the mutations that occur in human beings per generation, so this is, goes out to 200 generations, this is the relative mutation count. So mutations don't make us better. So do we evolve or do we devolve? So if, 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 we, if we look at these mutation rates now, there's, there's far more mutations that are deleterious than are beneficial. And so this is the mutation count that is going on for human beings. So human beings in 200 generations, 200 generations would be about 4,000 years, would have this sort of mutation rate increasing. So, so if we were evolving, you would think that we would be, our lifespan would be getting longer. But as we've seen, our lifespans are right about the same. So Moses wrote this in about 1300 BC, that lifespans are 70 or 80 years. Now, Moses himself lived to be 120. You say, that's impossible. What about that French woman? She lived to be 122. So it is possible for people to have these outliers. But he said, basically, people are living 70 or 80 years. Okay, so... Now, now this, is, this is the fitness decline relative to the starting population. Okay, so this is the fitness decline. So if you, if you take... Here's 200 generations. That's approximately four to 6,000 years, he says. And he took uh, um, this mutation rate by half or increasing the population. Uh, okay, so, so what he's showing is, this is the flat line. This is what we had seen with Noah in his generation. But due to mutations, you would expect the fitness to drop down. Fitness is the success of a genotype or reproductive success. 
So just because of mutations, we should be devolving. Not evolving, not getting better. We should be devolving. And actually, if you look at this, so this is his simulation, and this is, this is uh, I think, the standard deviation here, the, this shaded part. But you can see something that looks like that curve that you saw from Noah going forward. Uh, uh, well, what we're going to see with Noah and going forward. But you see this drops down, and then it starts to level off. It drops down, and then it starts to level off. So, this is the declining lifespan of Noah and his descendants. So, if you look at this, this is the declining lifespan. And so, this is plotting some of the points of the lifespan. This point, I question, because he took this as 45 years, as, which was the life, lifespan of the typical Roman male. But like I said, that is in question because infant mortality was throwing that off. So you actually should take this point and elevate it to be equal with this point. This is about 80 years. So as for the days or the length of our life, they contain 70 years or due to strength, 80. So this is, this is a, a mark right at about 80 years. And so you can see this is where God said that he would not strive with man much longer. Nevertheless, his day shall be 120 years. So all of a sudden, it congregated around 120. Dropped down and congregated around 120, and then dropped down again. And now we're in this level period. So it should level off. So maybe the Bible's right. Maybe the Bible's right. Maybe the Bible, you can actually take the normal, uh, 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 the, the normal rate at which one would devolve the race would devolve, and then you bring it into a standard lifetime that you see now. So when a person says, no, nobody could live that long, agreed, not today. But what if you were on this part of the curve? What if you were over here? Could you then live that long? So this is, this is a, a quoting from, from Sanford's book, and again, I don't agree with everything, but just look at his perspective. He says, the data strongly indicate that emerging scientific evidence of the genetic degeneration in humans are correct. Genetic entropy is the antithesis of evolution. The lifespan data strongly support the historicity and veracity of the Bible, and in particular, the book of Genesis. The lifespan data indicate that extreme longevity of early patriarchs was real, and that the rapid decline of longevity after the flood was real. This supports the biblical perspective of ongoing degeneration since the fall. In light of recent scientific findings, the documented decline in longevity is best understood in terms of mutation accumulation and genetic entropy. The smooth decline in longevity indicates there's no major gaps in the data. So the number of generations from Adam to Jesus as described in Luke chapter 3 is either correct or very nearly correct. There is simply no room in the curve for hundreds or even thousands of missing generations, as some contend. So many people will say, oh, there's hundreds of generations, maybe thousands of generations missing in the Bible. Actually, the lifespan data does not show that. It shows very accurately, it, it matches up with the, with the genealogy that's given in Luke. The drastic decline in longevity began very specifically at the time of the flood. This strongly supports the reality of a supernatural, cataclysmic, world-changing flood, not an ordinary local flood. Because if it had been a local flood, there would have been a lot of people that didn't die. Since the genealogies and longevity data are tightly linked, the validation of longevity data strongly supports the genealogy data. 
time from father to son and no major gaps, etc. So we can reasonably infer that Adam and Eve lived in the relative recent past. The declining longevity strongly indicate that evolution is going the wrong way and that evolutionary timeline is not viable. Although all three ancient texts of the Old Testament are in general agreement regarding the genealogies, longevity data, and the shape of the exponential decay curve, there are places where the texts differ regarding exact numbers. Our analyses suggest that the Mesoretic text, remember the Mesoretic text is the one that our Bible is, is written from, uh, uh, appears to be more reliable than either the Septuagint or the Samaritan texts. When we plotted longevity based on the Mesoretic versus the Septuagint text, we saw the coefficient of determination was higher for the Masoretic text of being 0.96 than the Septuagint data 0.93. Remember, one would be perfect. What you get from this is 0.96 from the Masoretic text. Do the math. You want to outsmart the Bible, smarty pants? Think about this. Um, the Samaritan text only indicates the first five books of the Bible and missing lifespan data prevents inclusion in, in this comparison. So he's using the mathematics of the life decay curve to, to predict which text is actually more accurate here. Very interesting. Okay, so that's, that's the end with, with, uh, with, with Sanford's work. But here's other, other just what, what's commonly understood in the area of genetics. Does mutation spawn human evolution? or devolution? Which one is happening? Do we devolve or evolve? There's only about 1 in 10,000 mutations are beneficial to an organism, while 1 in 100 are deleterious, and the remainder are neutral. All right, so you have 1 in 10,000 are beneficial. Remember I told you Stanford was generous in doing 1 in 1,000 as beneficial? It's actually 1 in 10,000, and only 1 in 100 are, and only, and 1 in 100 are deleterious. If that holds true, the only organisms that can be aided, meaning evolving to betterment, by mutational changes must have these two features. They have to have a population of greater than 10 to the 15th. That's a quadrillion. Humans are off by, a, 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 by six orders of magnitude. There's roughly, we're on the order of billions of humans. This is, that, that's 10 to the 9th. This is 10 to the 15th. So we're off by 10 to the 6th. We're off by six orders of magnitude. Lifespans have to be less than three months. Humans live about 900 months, so we're off by 10 to the 2 there. So we're two orders of magnitude off here, six orders of magnitude off there, for evolution being beneficial to the human race. This is only seen, you only see these things in organisms with sizes of less than one centimeter long. That's not humans, right? And, and uh, uh, so, so, you know, you, you might study something with fruit flies, but it doesn't apply to human beings because our, our, our population is too small, our lifetime is too long. So we may well be devolving. So, so this is an analysis then of the scriptural claims. Do we just dismiss the Bible because it doesn't match up with what we like? Do we just say, well, maybe the Bible's right and I'm wrong. Maybe the Bible's right and I'm wrong. You know, you know, and people will say, well, I, I, for me, it's science. You know, I trust science because science is right. Science isn't wrong on these sorts of things. Okay, well, let's look at a couple of things. Does the universe have a beginning? It was scientific fact changed in 1964. So there was the steady state theory, theory that the universe had no beginning. It has always been. This was the prevailing view of scientists in the 1950s. 
In the 1950s, this was the prevailing view of scientists. In my lifespan, the prevailing view of scientists is, is there was no beginning to the universe. It has always been, and matter was just added to the universe. Lots of creativity to keep this theory going. Then the Big Bang Theory came, and it, had, it said there was a definite beginning 13.8 billion years ago. For most cosmologists, the definitive refutation of the steady-state model came with the discovery of cosmic microwave background radiation in 1964, which predicted the Big Bang Theory. Now, the Big Bang Theory predates that, but that's where the definitive data came forth, which is much in line with the Bible in that there was an absolute beginning to the universe. So, there is your science having changed. Does that ever happen? Has that ever happened again? Well, in 1972, it happened again. Darwinian theory involves the slow, gradual change for development of a new species. Punctuated equilibrium suggests that evolutionary development is marked by isolated episodes of rapid speciation between long periods of little or no change. In other words, that, that there are millions of years where nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, in about 100,000 years, there's big changes take place. Eldridge and Gould, remember, these people are not Bible-believing people. Eldridge and Gould propose that the degree of gradualism commonly attributed to Charles Darwin is virtually non-existent in the fossil record, that stasis, or no morphological change, dominates the history of most fossil species. So in 1972, the fact of Darwinian theory being a slow, gradual process changed. There's your science, your science you hold on to that you live by. Well, just think about that. It can change. Uh, uh, what killed off the dinosaurs? Well, that changed in, in, in around 1980. Uh, climate change is what killed off dinosaurs 66 million years ago. That was the old view. Then it was now an asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs. An asteroid hit the, the uh, Yucatan Peninsula. It was an iridium-rich uh, uh, asteroid, and we know that because there's a thin layer of iridium that you can find all around the Earth that, that, from this explosion in high iridium there. And this was the Alvarez hypothesis. And so that then threw up all this dirt into the air, which covered the sun from coming in. And so then the, the, the plants died, the herbivores died, the carnivores that ate the herbivores died, and they died off. So that's the, that's the new theory since 1980. Prior to 1980, it was climate change. So science changed on you. How about this one? How long ago did the dinosaurs die off? Well, the scientific fact is being questioned as of 2007, so in your lifetime. Uh, dinosaur extinction event, which occurred approximately 66 million years ago, caused the extinction of uh, uh, the, the, the caused the extinction of dinosaur group, except for some of the, the, these birds. Well, in 2007, Mary Higby Schweitzer, she's a paleontologist, paleontologist at NC State. She led a group that discovered the remains of blood cells, <coughs> blood cells, in dinosaur fossils, and later discovered soft tissue remains in Tyrannosaurus rex specimens. Soft tissue is proteins, like collagen. Yeah, like meat. And, and, and I was talking to one professor, and he says, oh, it was just a ghost of a, of a blood cell. I said, no, it wasn't a ghost. I don't know what you mean, ghost. There is no definition of ghost in my, in my world of science. Maybe in your world of science there is. But there, it was not a ghost. She found a blood cell. Then, in 2015, researchers reported finding similar structures to blood cells and collagen fibers preserved in the bone fossils of six Cretaceous dinosaur specimens, which are approximately 75 million years old. So, either organic tissue stays around a lot longer than people thought, or the dinosaurs lived to a lot nearer to the time of, of human beings as we thought. So, who's wrong here? 
are you sure that the Bible is wrong? You want to bet your life on, on scientific claims? There are hard facts in science, and then there's conjectures, and the conjectures change a lot. So, what is the upshot of this whole thing? The upshot is human lifespans given in the Bible, can they be trusted? Maybe so. Maybe they can be trusted. Maybe it fits with this genetic entropy, this slow decline. The Bible is very specific. It gives us these numbers for a reason. And they didn't just start learning how to count uh, in Genesis chapter, chapter 12. They knew how to count in Genesis chapter 11 as well. They may well have been right. They may well have been right on this thing. Believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. The Bible is true. It is the Word of God. It is something that we can count on. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the Scriptures. I thank you for the Word of God. Lord, I thank you for what you have given us in this book. This book is a treasure. Lord, I thank you for the things that you reveal to us in this book. The Word of God is true. Blessed Bible. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. Father, I pray that you take these young people and that you impress this upon their hearts, not to discount this Word of God. Father, impress this upon their hearts, I pray, by the glories and the mercies of God. In the name of Jesus. Amen.